I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Hello again, and thanks for tuning into Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and we have a great story for you today. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. All right, I owe my undying gratitude and thanks to Brian Kahn. He's our first official patron, and thanks to him, I have a great new book on the Crusades for our upcoming uh, battlecast on the Battle of Arsuf. So thank you, Brian. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, please. It helps to bump us up that list. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Cauldron. And finally, be like Brian and go to Patreon.com and look up Cauldron and subscribe. The base subscription of $1 is called a skirmisher. And with that, you get a shout-out, my thanks, and for a limited time only, a show logo t-shirt of your choice. All right, the main sources for today's Battlecast are Paul K. Davis's 100 Decisive Battles in History. This book is a staple for me and was the first book I remember reading about military history when I was a kid. It's a great read and it's well-rounded in terms of its selection and I highly suggest it. It's a great starting point for anybody. Next, I read Charles Keene's Medieval Warfare. It's a super dense read, but really fantastic for answering those questions about how the mechanics of battle in the Middle Ages were. Finally, my boy Winston. I had to read History of the English-Speaking People again. It's, as always, a super fun read. I know the history can be a little uh, questionable, a little flowery at times, but I defy you to find someone that makes the story of history more goddamn entertaining than Churchill. Okay, that's it. Let's get stuck in on Cressy. I am a huge medieval nerd. Always have been, probably always will be. I love all things King Arthur, anything with a knight and a quest. Hell, I consider Tolkien my go-to guy. My little brother for years has been telling me I should get into some renaissance fair as an actor. And, and I think I resist the urge out of a fear that I would never put down the damn drinking horn and shield and go back to living in the modern world. Anytime someone throws out that question of, what time period would you rather be born into? I immediately think... Uh, high Middle Ages. Now, that's not to say I don't appreciate the realities of the situation. That uh, total random chance dictated your status, and there was essentially no movement. So if I was born a serf, I would die probably young, having never traveled more than 50 miles outside of my village, and still a serf. I I get that. I'm totally aware of it. I also understand that quests for grails and damsels and towers were mostly just violent raids on rival villages, and that the only real dragons around were on the edges of maps. But I still think it would be a really cool time to see in its full splendor, in its full glory. Just imagine a fully clad knight in his cuirass, his great helm, his gauntlets, and other little bits and bobs of plate armor all shining and clanking 
as he rides his destroyer at you. The horse also decked out in plate armor for its head and its neck. Now, both rider and horse are colorfully geared up in plumage. The knight's shield is a giant, beautiful symbol of his allegiance. He's got his lance in hand and pointing at its target. The sword at his side is ready to bring death to some Saracen, or worse still, a godless English archer. Imagine the pounding, clanging noise of this lone warrior charging home. And then multiply that by 15,000, the cacophony of metal and beast as it rides down its enemy. This impressive image, the very apex of warfare in its day, thousands of mounted knights charging in full glory, was put to the test by a far less impressive looking and numerically far inferior army with the fate of feudal France seemingly in the balance. August the 26th, 1346, near the River Somme in northern France, in a field near the small town of Cressy, an English snowfall signaled the beginning of the end for the age of chivalry. In 1327... Charles IV of France died and left no male heir. And as we've seen from time to time, this is kind of a big deal back then. But at first, things were seemingly okay. Edward III of England had a more direct claim to the throne, but he was willing to step aside on the condition that the new King Philip VI of France guaranteed his ownership of the Duchy of Aquitaine. The English king went so far as to offer to subordinate himself and kneel to the French king where his control of the Aquitaine was concerned. Aquitaine was an area of great wealth north of the Pyrenees. Uh, This became an English territory when one of history's most fascinating women, Eleanor of Aquitaine, married Henry II. And as we see time and again in history, an issue in the lowlands or in Flanders kind of fudged things up. The guilds in the Low Countries relied heavily on the import of English wool, and when this vital trade was threatened by French power, was added to the fact that there was a lot of aid in, in money and material going from the French to the rebellious factions in Scotland, Edward had little choice but to push his claim on the French throne. And so began a series of clashes between France and England that would last from 1337 all the way until 1453. To history, it's known as the Hundred Years' War. At the naval battle of Sluys, Edward won a great victory that gave him control of the channel and allowed for the reinforcement of his troops in Aquitaine. This was a big deal because it was on the border of Aquitaine in 1346 that the French king started to gather an army and even had the city of Aquion besieged. England at this time in history was something of a backwater. It was fairly poor and really unable to control its own island most of the time. European royals tended to think poorly of England, if they thought of her at all. Edward, understanding the financial need to keep Aquitaine and the Low Countries free of French control, had to make a move. And interestingly enough, he used the same landing area as the Allies some 600 years later. 
In Normandy, Edward disembarked his army of 15,000 men, all essentially paid regulars, because unlike the French system, the English king had encouraged their male populations to become proficient, even experts with their weapons. There were even laws passed that dictated how long and when longbowmen were to practice. All across England in this time period, village greens would be packed on Sunday mornings with men firing their longbows, and I have to imagine that there was probably a great deal of laughter and showmanship as the men vied for attention from the village girls over who had the longest shot. This practice and the recent campaigns in Scotland made for a very well-trained, experienced veteran English force. And with the combined motivations of steady pay and the possible upward mobility plunder and ransoms could provide, Edward's army, though small, far and away outclassed most anything it might see on the continent. In order to maximize this small army's abilities and to quickly start paying his men from the enemy's pockets, no less, Edward ordered his men on a chevouchee. A chevouchee is essentially a slash-and-burn offensive. The attacker moves on a wide front, burning, raping, robbing, and murdering their way through as much territory as possible. The idea was simple and effective. Scare the shit out of the French populace and convince them that King Philip could not protect them. That they would be safer under the English King Edward. If the English army also got fat and rich at the expense of the people of Normandy, well, so be it. At the city of Caen, Normandy's traditional capital and a place of great wealth, Edward had the city sacked and let his men loose. Now, throughout history, there are probably few places to be that are worse than in a city being sacked. The walls that minutes before the breach were meant to keep the people out doom the people on the inside, effectively pinning them in for their executioners to find them all the easier. Loaded with loot and with an army of veterans with their blood up, Edward's chevouchee had been effective in every way. Most importantly, by pulling the French king and his army away from the Aquitaine and towards Edward's own army. It's at this point that the chase to Cressy began. Feudalism in France essentially boiled down to every adult male in the kingdom owing their lord a period of military service, and then those lords, in turn, owed their king the same. This was a great way to muster a large army fairly quickly, but the quality of that army would be middling at best, as a large portion of it would be untrained levies of poorly equipped infantry. In fact, the most effective branch of the French army would be its wealthy knights, men who could afford to equip themselves out of their own pocket. Not exactly a standing army, these heavily armed and armored knights spent their whole lives practicing for war, which meant that when needed, they were extremely important to the king's cause. Unfortunately for the king of France in the Middle Ages, his knights and lords were very well aware of this, and so they could and did make life very difficult at times. And as we will see, sometimes they even made decisions for their king. 
It's a far cry from the absolute monarchy of the Sun King a few hundred years in the future. Now, along with the main French body of heavy cavalry and infantry, there was a large contingent of Genoese mercenaries, men who were equipped with the powerful but slow-to-reload crossbow. Because the process of reloading was so labor-intensive, in some cases requiring specialized tools, crossbowmen would actually carry a pavis, essentially a large, full-body, self-standing shield that they would hide behind while reloading. Because of the longer range, deadlier impact, and relative lack of training needed to use them, crossbows were a rival to the longbow in almost every way. Their downfall was that for every two bolts loosed by the Genoese, an English longbowman had already put six to eight arrows into the sky. The French king, however, needed a ranged unit, and the crossbowmen would suffice. The problem now was that he had to catch the English. After laying waste to Normandy, Edward and his army moved south, and they tracked east for Paris passing just north of the city at a short distance, probably because Edward was gauging whether or not he had a chance at taking the city. All the while, the French army was gathering men and moving along a parallel line and slightly behind Edward, trying to catch up. The French goal was to trap the English somewhere inland and destroy it with overwhelming numbers. And it seemed like this might actually happen because as Edward and the English tried to make their way back to the coast and safety... They found their way much harder than it, was, it, it seemed like at first. Everywhere that they tried to cross a river, the way was blocked by the French army on the other side, or the crossing point itself had been destroyed. At the very end of the line, they came to the headwaters of the Somme, and it's here that a tidal flat provided the much-needed crossing. But the window for crossing would be wholly dependent on the tides. Now imagine an early kind of Dunkirk, where the English are standing on the side of this river waiting for the tide to go out, and they can hear the French army coming up behind. The mental strain must have been immense on these soldiers. A little ways away from their escape route, the English found the village of Cressy on Pont Neu. And there they made a camp, restocking on food and wine. Noticing the strong, defensible ground he was on, Edward threw his line out with the left flank anchored on a small stream, and his right flank on the large Cressy Forest. That way, he was ensuring that the only way to attack him was up this small slope in the front of his men. At this point, he had lost some soldiers, and he had about 11,000. Most of those men would have been the 7,000-strong longbowmen and another 2,000 heavy men-at-arms. The longbow was originally a Welsh weapon that had been appropriated by the English with vigor. Made of yew and between five and six feet in length, depending on the archer's height, it could take over a 100 pounds to draw. All that practice probably helped there. Now, killing at ranges of 100 to 150 yards and piercing plate armor at 60 yards... They were not quite as deadly as the crossbow on their own, but the trick was in massed volleys. Each man carried around 24 arrows in a quiver and could fire off 6 to 12 arrows every minute, and whole carts of arrows were held behind the line to keep the archers well fed. 
With 7,000 archers firing within minutes, the skies would go black with upwards of 84,000 arrows in flight, which could easily break up any massed charge of cavalry or infantry. So Edward, realizing that the only way to effectively use his archers was to mass them in groups, he placed three large clumps of archers separated by knights or men-at-arms fighting on foot between each section. This way, the fire of the archers would herd the enemy forces into the meat grinder of the heavily armed men-at-arms. Edward, of course, was in overall command, but he placed himself in the rear with the reserve and instead had his 16-year-old son, Prince Edward, soon to be the Black Prince, command the right wing of the army, likely to be the place of most danger. Allowing the men to relax, eat, and drink their fill, King Edward went among them in the age-old fashion of great leaders, giving a word of encouragement here, a pat on the ass there, all in the hopes that they would see how little he was concerned with the issue at hand. It must have worked, because when Edward received news that the French had finally caught up around midday on Saturday the 26th, his army was ready to fight. Moving more like a swarm than an army, the French made it to Cressy pretty much piecemeal, with the knights and Genoese mercenaries in the lead. It's at this point that the power of the French nobility, or maybe more accurately the powerlessness of King Philip, plays a huge role in deciding the opening act of this century-long war. As the French knights ride up and see the English across the field, they had a choice wait for their infantry levies to follow and fill out their numbers, giving them a truly massive numerical superiority, or ride against the English immediately in the hopes that the sheer power and impetus of the charge would prove irresistible to the smaller English army. The king apparently wanted to halt and wait. It was late in the afternoon and he wanted to set up camp for the night to better array and prep his men. But the French nobility, seeing the size of the army against them and believing in the impervious superiority of the mailed knight, and also with the open wounds and psychological shame of Edward's chevouchee fresh on the mind, demanded immediate action. Things moved quickly and Philip probably had no chance to really assert himself as the Genoese crossbowmen were being herded forward by the French knights. All 6,000 of these mercenaries took up a position mirroring the entire English line. Now three critical points turned what should have been a fairly even exchange of fire into a nightmare for the French side. First, at some point there had been a quick downpour of heavy rain, and in their battle-ready state, the Genoese had been unable to protect their crossbow strings from the rain, which made them very weak and likely to break. Second, in the mad rush to beat the English from the field, the French knights had pushed the Genoese in the front of the line without their defensive pavises, making them incredibly vulnerable. And third, the English had the sun at their back, so when the Genoese finally did draw their bows, they were blinded by the late afternoon sun. What followed was a massacre, as the uh, essentially defenseless mercenaries quickly came into longbow range. 
Hundreds of Genoese fell in the first volleys of English arrows, and it's no surprise that under such a maelstrom of death, they simply could not hold the line. In the panic, the Genoese broke and began to flee back into the French main body. Now, disgusted by this perceived cowardice, the French nobility at first tried to beat the Genoese back into line, and failing that began to just simply ride them down and charge into them, to get them out of the way. It's not known how many of these mercenaries died at the hands of the flower of French nobility, but I would assume it was quite a large number simply because there was nowhere else for them to go, and they had to move backwards into the mass of angry, heavily armed knights. The English had broken the enemy archers and were in a strong position, but now they faced the true challenge, standing their ground while heavily armed and armored men poured down upon them intent on crushing them. Set up with a large group of archers on each end of their line and one in the middle with lines of men at arms in the gaps, uh, basically try and picture a, a toll booth and the archers are the concrete um, triangular columns, and the men-at-arms make up the actual toll itself. Ideally, the cavalry would break itself away from the triangles and into the smaller line of men-at-arms. This would take away the French numbers and even allow for uh, a crisscrossing field of fire for the archers. The French, on the other hand, hoped to simply burst through the English and then get to the English king. With only one way to achieve their goal, the French knights trotted into a massive, disorganized line and began to move in the direction of the English. Picking up steam as they moved across the field, the French mounts were like mini panzers barreling down on the seemingly weak English. Then, suddenly, the sky went dark, and an incredibly fast cloud passed across the dipping sun. The English had let loose their first volley. While that was in the air, the second one was on its way, and the noise that had filled the air moments before, the dull rumble of thousands of hooves beating the earth, completely changed in the flight of an arrow. Now, all that could be heard were the terrified screams of men and horses being wounded, in many cases both rider and mount falling as if one, just and which was just as deadly as being shot through by an arrow. The sheer weight of horse, mount, armor, everything made getting back up an incredible and often impossible task. The cohesion needed for cavalry to slam into infantry lines had been broken, and the process of regrouping took time, but the French were not to be denied. Again, the charge... This time, the French knights had to contend with the masses of fallen men and horses, and again, the arrows and the chaos. As many as 12 to 15 times, the French knights charged, each successive wave becoming more desperate. And it's at one point in these charges that the blind king of Bohemia, King John, considered the embodiment of chivalry and the greatest knight in all of Europe, went on his final ride. Fearing that he would tarnish his reputation with defeat and retreat, 
The blind king had his mount tied to the mounts of his men, and in a blaze of glory, dashed off towards the English line. Now he was not alone, and towards the end of the battle, the English men-at-arms found themselves in some very hard fighting. Led by the Prince of Wales, the English heavy infantry fought ferociously, pushing back the French every time they reached the line. But exhaustion and fatigue must have set in at some point because the young prince found himself surrounded and under heavy attack. He sent a messenger to his father, the king, to seek reinforcements, but the English king responded famously that he wanted to let the boy win his spurs and so refused the reinforcements, forcing his son to do exactly that. The Prince of Wales cut his way free and earned a reputation as a fierce warrior, and he also earned the badass nickname of the Black Prince. After the fiercest fighting abated, it became clear that the French army was broken, and it began to completely disintegrate. Now, we've said it a few times, but when an army crumbles, it's at its most vulnerable and usually suffers the bulk of its casualties. So it was at Cressy. The English archers and men-at-arms dispatched any wounded enemies of little worth in the field, and the rested knights and light cavalry, or hobblars, were sent in pursuit of the fleeing French. The English losses for the day were well under 500, while the French had lost somewhere between two and maybe 4,000 of their best knights, an irreplaceable loss. The number of dead Genoese was probably even higher, having had to suffer through the arrows of the English and then fight through the oncoming French. After the battle ended, the French levies, or poorly armed infantry groups, that had never quite made it to the battlefield itself, were still traveling up the road, and these guys came under attack by the English cavalry. For days, the surrounding countryside would see countless little battles play out, wherein the poorly armed and untrained French levy infantry learned of the English victory by being ridden down by English cavalry. There's really no number on how many levy men or peasants the roving English cavalry killed, but easily in the thousands is a safe bet. The body of the blind King John was eventually found with all his men and their mounts, dead, still tied to each other. The French army was gone, and so the way was clear for King Edward to march on and within a year take the port of Calais, which would remain in English hands for a couple of hundred years. The following years of, of the Hundred Years' War went just as poorly for the French as time and time again the democratic longbow allowed the poor Englishmen to strike down the mounted French nobility. This section of the war culminated at the Battle of Poitiers, where the Black Prince would outfox the French and even capture the French king himself. The following ransom and peace cost France three million gold crowns and a huge amount of territory. The Longbow had effectively changed the way Western war was made, and it changed the European map in one afternoon. Never again would the heavily armored knight be the most deadly force on the field. With the eventual advent of the gun, and there were actually some small, fairly ineffective cannon at the Battle of Cressy, but they produced little more than noise, 
the advent of the gun and ranged weapons in the hands of masses would lead to more democratic battlefields, proving any man could be killed. English momentum after Cressy and Poitiers would stall and eventually falter with the death of the first of first the Prince of Wales and then his father, King Edward III. Eventually, France, with the aid of a peasant girl turned warrior saint, would recover, and the titanic struggle between England and France would go on to some degree or another for hundreds of years. But that famous struggle between nations started on a little field near the town of Cressy. All right, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our little story today. I apologize for mispronouncing any words. And I'm excited to get stuck in on the next episode where I'll be covering the Meuse-Ergon Offensive, so stay tuned for that. Again, please rate and review us on iTunes and check out the Instagram for some factoids and really cool related images. Just search Cauldron. Let me leave you with this. The plague, more commonly known as the Black Death, swept through Europe soon after Cressy. The populations of most major countries suffered dreadfully, including France and England. The Black Prince himself, the most feared warrior in all of England, may have died from the plague, and countless soldiers on both sides would have succumbed to the terrible disease. So my question is, what would Europe look like if there had been no Black Death? Specifically, in terms of the Hundred Years' War, with England on a roll and France on the ropes, this weird kind of respite that the plague gave France must have had some effect on the war's progress. I wonder what you think. 